Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Well, open up your Bibles to First Peter, still in chapter 1. First Peter. Some of you um, would remember an 80s movie called The Karate Kid. And if you, aren't, if you haven't seen it, it's about a kid who learns karate. But it's a bigger story than that. Um, so it's this boy named Daniel who moves to California, and he gets bullied, and all of this uh, bad stuff happens to him on Halloween night, and he gets beat up, and loses his bike and all this. And then he goes to this, there's this um, a Jap, a Japanese fella who, who is the maintenance guy of their building where they live. And so he's talking to him and says, you know, I want to learn karate. Or if you're a purist, karate. But he says, I want to go, I want to learn karate. Can you teach me? And he's like, well, no, I don't think so. And he's like, come on, come on. He begs him, fine, yes, I'll teach you. Come over to my house. So he goes over to his house. And he gets, and he's like, all right, let's, let's get to work. Let's learn some karate. Well, Mr. Miyagi says, paint the fence. Paint the fence? What are you talking about? And he gives him this specific motion to paint the fence, up and down, up and down, left hand, right hand, right? Paint the fence. And so he does this. And this, this is a multi-day job to paint his fence. So Daniel's getting frustrated, kind of trying to do a haphazard job. Mr. Miyagi takes the brush, shows him again the right motion, right? Then after that's done, he goes to Mr. Miyagi and he's like, okay, now, now we're going to learn karate, right? Nope, wax the car. Wax the car, yep. And then he shows him, wax on, wax off. And he's giving him these very specific motions. Daniel's getting very frustrated. What he didn't realize, though, was that as he's teaching him all this stuff and as he's trying to kill flies with chopsticks, he is actually learning these motions and these moves to defend himself in a karate match. And so he finally, it all clues, or he clues in, he, it all, finally the penny drops for him and he ends up in this tournament and ends up beating, you know, evil Cobra Kai in the final. But Mr. Miyagi, he had this bigger plan for him, Right? In the midst of it, Daniel didn't see it. He didn't understand. Why is this old man just getting me to do all his chores around his house? But no, that wasn't what was happening. He was actually teaching him things in the midst of that. Even though he couldn't see it, he couldn't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. We've had this happen in our lives, too. There's things that you go through. Um, there's things that you do, even things that you go and learn, and you think that you're going to use that in one specific area of life, but then that, that knowledge ends up being valuable in a lot of different areas of life. Or you even think about the mistakes you've made and the screw-ups that you've had or things people that have done that hurt you even. And on the surface, all of this stuff seems kind of chaotic and pointless, but there's a bigger thing going on in our lives. God has a bigger plan for us. We actually see this in Scripture too. So if you read the Old Testament 
And if you just focus on the specific stories kind of one by one, they kind of seem random and pointless. You think of Noah building his ark for a hundred years. Imagine being him building this. What in the world am I doing building this massive boat? Is it actually going to happen the way God says it's going to happen? Or you think about David as he's anointed king, and yet the current king just wants to kill him, and he's running. Or you think about even later in David's life when his son is hunting him down. All of these stories, and, and even, you even look at a guy like Jeremiah who prophesied, and while he's prophesying, he's not seeing any fruit in the kingdom of Israel. And you think about being in the situation of, of these guys' lives and kind of going, Lord, what is going on here? What's the plan? But from our perspective, we can look back at Scripture. We can look and see that all of these things had a very specific purpose in God's plan and in his revealing of Scripture and his revealing of his plan to us. And all of these things are moving toward God's primary goal God saving his people from sin through the Messiah. So look at today's verses. 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. He, is Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The big idea for today's message is that God's plan has always been Jesus. God's plan has always been Jesus. And the points, number one, the plan for known. Number two, the plan for faith. So getting into the first point. Peter starts this passage by writing, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This actually echoes a phrase, this this word foreknown. He used this earlier, back in verses 1 and 2, where he wrote this, and I'll just summarize it quickly, but to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And so when I preached this a few weeks ago, we talked about what the word foreknown means or this idea of foreknowledge. This isn't just God's looking into the future and knowing what's going to happen. This, no, this is a much more, uh, this, there's much more depth to this word. There is, it essentially is, is an intimate relational knowledge. So where verse 1 and 2 says that according to the foreknowledge of God, we are elect exiles... He's he's saying that before time began, before the foundation of the world, we as elect exiles, our names were written down. He knew us. We as elect exiles, Christ followers, we are sinful but forgiven. And living as a part of earthly kingdoms, so Canada's not a kingdom, but we technically are still under the monarchy, so we can kind of say it, right? So we are, we are living in a kingdom. You look at any other, any other country, they have rulers over them, and these are essentially little kingdoms. We are living within these kingdoms, but ultimately, we are a part of God's heavenly kingdom. And God knew us and set his covenant love on us. 
before we were born, before your grandfather was born, before your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was born, God had already set his covenant love on you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. So this, that's the idea for knowledge from verses 1 and 2, but that goes for the same with Jesus in today's passage, where it says that he was foreknown. And some of you might hear that and go, well, of course he is foreknown, he's God. That Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, with God forever, part of creation, part of, part of helping God create everything. But it's, it's deeper again than just that. It's not just that God knows Jesus or knows the second person of the Trinity, but it's bigger. So look at the verse prior to verse 20, verse 19. Basically, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Then he was foreknown, okay? So it talks about his, that we were ransomed with Christ's blood like that of a lamb without blemish and Christ was foreknown. So it's not just that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but that he was actually the lamb who was slain, known to be that before the foundation of the world. So when I say Jesus was plan A from the beginning, this is what I mean. Not just that Jesus exists, but that Jesus actually would be the lamb who would be slain for the sin of the world. Revelation 13 actually confirms this. In Revelation 13, 8, John, writing down the vision that he's getting, writes this. 13, verse 8, Revelation. And all who dwell on earth, he's talking about the beast, okay? He's talking about the beast rising up. The beast is being empowered by Satan himself. This is talking about the end times. I'm not going to get into all the end time stuff, but look at this passage. The beast is rising up, John writes, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So before the foundation of the world, there's a book written. God's written this book. It is called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So before creation, God had this plan in place. Do you realize the magnitude of that? This means means that when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and God came walking into the garden, he wasn't surprised. It wasn't like, oh no, they've really screwed things up. What am I going to do? There's got to be a plan B. No, there's plan A. And he's staying with plan A. God's plan from the beginning included the lamb being slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, with his active, perfect obedience, was plan A all along. Now this can lead to an uncomfortable question. The question becomes, if this has been God's plan from the start, did God cause sin? Did God cause sin? 
Because if from the beginning God has planned that humanity would be saved through Jesus, then also from the beginning sin had to be part of that plan, right? If we need to be saved, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin. And so therefore, sin has to be part of the plan. So does God cause sin? Well, this is a tricky thing to answer. Because when we look, because if we look at Scripture and what Pastor Heinz preached last week about us having this proper, reverent fear of God, in our fear of God, we cannot attribute sin to God. God is holy. God is perfect. He is sovereign, and we have to have this good fear of him and this, this reverence. But we can't attribute sin or evil to God. So if we're going to revere him properly, we can't attribute sin to him. God is without sin. He's holy. One verse that's clear on this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, which teaches the rock, talking about God himself, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God is perfect, he's holy. While God doesn't cause sin, he is, he is neither the author of sin, but he does permit it. He does allow it. A good example of this is the book of Job, where Satan comes to God in heaven. God, Satan shows up and, and starts accusing Job to the Lord and, and saying, Lord, let me go and punish him. Let me go and inflict damage on him. And what happens? God allows him to. But not unlimited. Satan's on a leash. God allows him to go and bring trouble onto Job and see what, how Job reacts to this. But it's not an unlimited amount of power, and God gives him limits to what he can do. And some might ask, why would God allow any sin? And that's a good question, because sin has caused a whole lot of damage. So why would God allow any sin? Well, God, by allowing some sin shows us attributes that we actually wouldn't see if sin wasn't in existence. So we wouldn't know God's grace without sin. If we were just perfect from the beginning, and we, we and Adam and Eve had lived and procreated, and the earth was filled the way it was all planned, we wouldn't actually understand what his grace was. We also wouldn't know his justice without sin. We wouldn't see that there is things that, ha that, are, that, that need to be punished. We wouldn't see that he is just and upright in everything that he does. We wouldn't know his mercy. We wouldn't know the depth of the love of God without sin. Now, this isn't to give in to some kind of yin-yang theory that maybe you've seen that. You've seen that symbol probably, which is like the black and white, where the black has a little bit of white and the, the white has a little bit of black. And this, this is like an Eastern mysticism symbol that basically says everything that's good has a little bit of darkness and everything that's bad has a little bit of light. That's not a biblical view of sinfulness and righteousness. 
That is, that is an Eastern mysticism philosophy, and it is not biblical. God's holy, holiness is not stained by sin at all, nor will sin always exist. It's not like they're two competing forces. There's God, the perfect creator, and there's the creation, which is broken and sinful. And God will... Like, it's like, um, the way I was picturing it, it was like God's righteousness is moving and eventually will cover it completely and it will be, sin will be gone, darkness will be gone, destruction will be gone, disease will be gone, pain, suffering will be gone. But we also wouldn't know Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. And when we recognize the depth of our sin, so here's how God uses sin in our lives. He makes beautiful things out of the dust. When we see how deep and wide our sin is, then we see how great our Savior is. So here's a a bit of an exercise for you that might be painful. Think about your deepest, darkest moments your deepest, darkest sins, just for a second. And you've probably already had a number of things that you've done in your life go through your head. Think of the depths of the pain and sorrow that it caused in both yourself, that it fractured relationships between you and other people, but also between you and God. Now picture God's holiness. Okay, so there's a vast chasm between you and your sinfulness and God and his holiness. Nothing can get you across. Nothing that you can do can get across. You can't build a bridge over it. You can't take an airplane over it. You can't do anything to get across this chasm to God. It is that vast. But there's one thing, and that's Christ. Christ and his work on the cross, like we just sang about nothing but the blood of Jesus, Christ and his work and his blood covering our sins spans that chasm so that we are now able to be in right relationship with God once again. So you see, if you see how big your sin is, you see how big your Savior is. If you see your sin as just little and something that you can just kind of step over and ignore... Yeah, your Savior isn't very important, is he? The plan for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, was plan A from before the beginning. Karen Jobes, who is a theologian and wrote one of the best commentaries on 1 Peter, said this, God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. Everything about redemption he knew before the foundation of the world. And while that in and of itself is mind-blowing and hard to wrap your head around, and it might even raise more questions for you, that's not the craziest part of it. The craziest part of it is that God planned it all so that you would have faith in him. Which leads us to the second point, the plan for faith. 
I read these verses again. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him, being Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. So God's whole plan, as Peter says, was for the sake of you. But the English language is funny. We can use you in a singular sense or a plural sense. Here, it's a plural sense. So really, we want to be good Southerners here and say y'all. So all y'all's faith was God's objective in creating this plan from before the beginning. Let that sit for a second. Your faith, my faith, every believer that's come before us, every believer that will come after us, our faith was God's point and his objective in his entire plan for creation and everything you see in Scripture. God, the omnipotent, omniscient, holy creator of all things, Father, Son, and Spirit, had y'all in mind your joy, your hope, and your faith in mind when he set everything into motion. A story from our family uh, back in 2009, um, Christmas 2009, okay? Um, the previous year had been kind of a struggle for our family. Um, late 2008, Carla was really sick. You know how tall, how short she is, <laughs> and how ver vertically challenged. Um, and you know how small she is, basically. And, and within a couple of months, she lost 50 pounds because she was so sick. Doctors were doing every test that, that, could that they could do, every, and they, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the last set of tests, and finally, even those came back negative, but the doctor said, listen, you, just try cutting out certain things from your diet and uh, see how that goes. So 2009 was basically uh, a year of trying, try and fail of what she can eat and what she can't eat. And we got a good handle of that about halfway through the year and, and then getting through into fall that year because it had been kind of a rough year. We hadn't been um, on a big vacation as a, just as a family yet. And so I thought, I'm going to plan a big vacation. We're going to go to Disneyland. We're going to take the kids. We had been there once prior when, um, when Amelia was a baby, but now we also had Toby. He was two years old, and we hadn't been there with him yet, and our kids, other kids are a little bit older, so we're like, this is perfect age. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm, I go online, go on Disney, Disney's website, planned it through them, planned the, the hotels. I planned for two weeks, road trip, planned where we were going to stop to eat because of Carla's food allergies, how many, wherever we could find Trader Joe's, wherever we could find um, uh, P.F. Chang's, Chick-fil-A. These are places that we could all eat. And of course, Chick-fil-A, right? If you've been, yes. Thank you. So this is, the, this is the plan. I made this whole plan. And then Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve came and I gave each kid an envelope. And so Isabel opened hers, and there was a note, and it said, in March. And then Mary-Kate opened hers, and she read it, and it said, we are going. And then Amelia opened hers and said, to. 
And then we opened up Toby's and it said, Disneyland. And everybody cheered and was excited. And then the phone rang. And it was Mickey Mouse calling, a pre-recorded message to, to invite them to come and meet him at Disneyland. And he was so excited to meet them. It was a pretty great plan, if I must say myself, right? <laughs> pretty great plan. And why did I do it? I did it for their joy. So, if I who am sinful can plan something and, and, and receive what I planned, the joy and excitement of my kids. How much greater is God and his holiness and his plans for you? Because as fun as that was, planning that and going on the vacation, everything was fantastic. That was nothing in comparison to God's plan for your faith. Peter writes that Jesus was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you all, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So God's entire plan for all of history has come to pass so that you will put your faith and hope in him. And that's the greatest thing that he could want for you because God is the greatest thing that there is. So people on the outside um, who don't know God, who don't know Christ, who, are, who, who mock the church or whatever might look at this and go, man, God's a real egomaniac for him to think that that's the greatest thing, is that you would know him. But when God is the greatest thing that there is, and that is the greatest being in the universe, in all his power, all his might, all his grace and love and mercy, the greatest thing that he can want for you is that you would know him. Period. God's desire for you to have faith in him is the greatest thing that you could ever ask for. Sadly, though, we often put our faith and our hope in other things, and we all do it in different ways. We all find our joy in other things, and when we're having struggles, we run to these other things for that joy or for that comfort, for that peace. So here are some things. And I'll ask you, what, what is it for you? Is it your work that you run to or your leisure? Is it your financial security or your vacations and fun experiences? Is it your kids or your grandkids? Is it the Canucks or the Oilers? You're like, not the Canucks right now, that's for sure. The NFL or the CFL? Your physical fitness or your enjoyment of ice cream? Vaccination or vitamins? Your spouse or your singleness? Your service to others or others' service to you? Which of those things do you run to? Because when we look at all of those things, every one of those things is a good thing. But every one of those things also makes a really bad God. 
You will not find your comfort and your joy and, and your peace in any of those things, in any lasting sense. And if those are the things that you're running to, then in those moments, you're running to something for your peace, something lesser than God. Brothers and sisters, you belong to God. He has cast his love on you. He has ransomed you with the blood of his own son. So stop dwelling on much lesser things. Don't allow these lesser things, as fun as they could be or as helpful as they could be, don't allow those things to be your ultimate thing. Don't allow any of those things to come in between you and fellowship with a brother or sister. Don't allow any of those things to grab your heart in such a way that you are willing to sacrifice your love for God or your love for the church. True comfort in life will only come from Christ, not from any of these things. The first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, which I might have even read before, I'm not sure, but uh, one of a great Reformation document has this question and answer. Uh, it goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Listen to these words and let them sink deeply. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Only Christ will bring you true comfort and true joy and true lasting peace. The kind of joy and comfort and peace that you're looking for. Only Christ. So I encourage you all, um, if you don't know Jesus, come to Christ. Give your life to him. Think, think back on on, on, like I was talking about before, all those mistakes, all those screw-ups, all those sins you've done, and think about that chasm that's between you and God and say, I need to breach that chasm. And it's only through Christ that that can happen because it's only through his righteousness, not your own. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how much you try to pay God back, you won't do it. It's only through putting your faith and your trust in Christ for your righteousness that you will be considered righteous. For those of you that are Christians already, I encourage you, pray. Read your Bible. Do your devotions. Serve in the church. Fellowship with one another. Meet each other face to face. Pray together. Show love for each other. Bring, serve those who are hurting. So serve those in the church that you love. And when we do these things, when we confess our sins easily and forgive quickly, 
our faith will grow taller and our roots in Christ will grow deeper. So remember, when, when you look back on your life and you're in times that seem chaotic, remember God's ultimate plan and that nothing will stop it. Jesus is plan A. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word and that we can come to your word and see this amazing truth that while everything is chaotic around us and we can't understand it, you, Lord, are totally sovereign and in control. We thank you that even in our own lives, when we screw up and when we sin, Lord, you can actually use us coming out of that to be a blessing. It might be painful, and it often is. But Lord, you're sanctifying us by your spirit. And your goal in all of it is that we would have faith in you. So bless us as we continue to worship. In your name, Jesus, amen.